Well, I invite you to take your Bibles, and if you would, open to the book of Genesis and chapter 2 this morning. As we come to the Lord's Word, uh, let's go to Him in prayer and ask Him to uh, direct our, our attention and our thoughts this morning. Father, we are so blessed, we are so privileged that You have given to us Your Word. You have spoken You have given us Your Word. It is inspired. It is without error. It is authoritative. And so we have the honor of opening it. How we ask that You would, through Your Spirit, enlighten us, open our eyes that we might see Your truth. Lord, we ask as well that You would uh, quicken our hearts that we might not just be those who, who hear information and who store away truth in our minds, but Lord, that the truth will penetrate our hearts. That Your Word would take root in us. That it would change us from the inside out. So to that end, Lord, we commit ourselves and we ask Your blessing on this time as we open Your Word. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Back in my early years at the chapel, that was about a thousand years ago, I was the youth pastor for many years. And uh, in those early days, there was a, a teacher over at the local high school who was well known for attacking the beliefs of any Christian students who happened to find their way into his classroom. I would hear from kids in our youth group who, how he ridiculed their simplistic beliefs in Scripture and most especially their beliefs in the Genesis account of God's creation. Among the many things that he would, would throw at them over the course of the year, one of them is he would Make sure to tell and declare to all these students how the book of Genesis gives two conflicting creation accounts. And so you must either believe one or the other, but you can't believe both of them. And, and preferably, of course, he would say, you just need to throw out the whole book because it's all a bunch of myth. Now, he wasn't the first one to come up with this concept that there are two conflicting accounts of creation here in Genesis 1 and 2. It's been repeated by critics of the Scripture for well over a century. And you'll still run into it in many classrooms or if you spend much time in education. uh, You'll run across it on the Internet. You'll hear it in conversations with unbelievers or with many liberal Christians for that matter. They will say that the first account of creation is what we have been looking at over the past four weeks, beginning in Genesis 1-1 and going through where we left off last week in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 3. And then, picking up here where we are today in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4, there's a second account of creation. And again, they would say it's vastly different from and in contradiction to the first account. They would say, for example, that here in Genesis chapter 2, 
there are not six days of creation, just a single day of creation. And it has really a, a single period of creation that doesn't really have any timeline. They would say that the world here in Genesis chapter 2 is dry, but the world in Genesis 1 is a very wet world. They would say that here in Genesis 2 that plants are created after man, whereas in Genesis 1 they are created before man. They would say that first man is created, then animals are created, then woman is created, and plants are created, as I said, after man. They would point out that the two accounts use two different names for God. And so obviously, say the critics, this account in chapter 2 is a very different story from that in chapter 1, written by different authors and the compiler of Genesis, because obviously they would say Moses didn't write Genesis or really anything that he says he did. And uh, it was just a compiler who put together various things. And the compiler came across, he had two stories of creation and he couldn't decide which one was right. And, and so he just included them both and was too ignorant to notice that they didn't go together. So say the critics. So I asked this morning, do we have before us here in Genesis chapter 2 and picking up in verse 4, do we have a second creation account? And the answer to that is yes. But is it a contradictory account of creation? And the answer is no. Actually, if you come here to Genesis chapter 2, and you start here in verse 4, and if you read this assuming that this is all written by one author, by Moses, and that he is not ignorant, but has purpose and plan, what you discover is that it is superbly written and it is a masterfully reasoned piece of literature. Not just these two chapters, of course, but really all of the book of Genesis. Genesis 1.1, from there to Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, has given to us a big picture of the creation of everything. How God has created everything that we see in six days, and on the seventh day, as we noted last week, He ceased creation. And with that background picture, now it picks up here in verse 4. And it gives us more details about day six, the day when man is created. The first account is, as it were, a panoramic picture. Most of us on our, even on our cell phones, we have, when we go to camera, it has panoramic mode. And we can take the big picture. Genesis chapter two, verse four, what happens is, We've got the panoramic picture and now it switches to zoom mode. And we zoom in and look again at day six. It's important to notice the first words here in verse four. It says, these are the generations of, or some of you in some of your translations it might read, this is the account of. And what you discover if you read carefully, 
through the rest of the book of Genesis is this isn't the only time you'll find those words. Matter of fact, you'll find those exact words 11 different times in the book of Genesis. We noted last week, and I'm sure most of you already knew, but the, the chapter numbers and verse numbers in the Bible were not there originally. They're not part of the original text of the authors. They were added by translators over the centuries to help us find where we are. But that doesn't mean that there aren't at times divisions. Matter of fact, what these words are, these are the generations of, or this is the account of, those are the transition paragraphs, the transitions, phrases between the various sections of the book of Genesis as Moses lays it out. They transition you from one part, one section to the next. These words here, this first transition, it says, look in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And by the way, just as they show up through the book, if you're taking notes, they show up 11 different times. But this first transition summarizes the, the, what has happened before, what has preceded this in those seven days of creation. It's given us the big picture and But they also not only look back to that, but they, as a good transition does, they move us ahead to what's coming. And what's coming, as he explains the story of man, the making of man, get, looks again and with more detail at day six, is it looks to help us to understand something. Why we... And this next section, by the way, goes all the way through the end of chapter 4, which will be past where our series goes. But what it's doing is it's, it's answering the question, how did we end at day 6 of creation when God finished creating it all and He looked at it and said, it's very good. It's a perfect creation. And how do we move from that to what we see today, which is not a perfect creation? A world which is flawed and has lots of big problems. How did we move from there to here? The answer is, you see, this is the generations. This is the account of the heavens and the earth in the day they were created. It's the rest of the story of how we got from there to here. In the process, we get the story of man. And where we'll end up and where we'll end this series is after chapter 3 when sin comes into the world in the fall and it explains it all. But let's pick up our text here. With this expanded look at the, this day of creation, we're actually going to have five messages from these, this whole section. So hang in there. I'm not going to go back and try to explain all the, the those we talked about the those who say there are contradictions between chapters 1 and 2, I won't hit those in, in terms of a list, but pretty much all, the ob, all of the objections they have we'll cover today or in the weeks ahead, just as part of our study through the text. So verse 4, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground. 
And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And so again, the critics say, see, there it is. There has no bush, no shrub of the field, no plant of the field has sprung up. There's no vegetation on earth. But it says in the next verse, before all that happened, it goes on and seems to say that man is created. He, man, he's created man before plants. But chapter 1 said that plants were created on day 3, man created on day 6. It's a glaring contradiction. Might as well throw your Bible out. Or instead, you could just read it a little more carefully. Notice what it says. And, and here we're looking at man's world, is that it says that no bush, no shrub of the field, no plant of the field, but it doesn't say no plants existed. It says rather that certain plants didn't exist. A bush or shrub of the field, a plant of the field. And then it goes on to give an explanation why those two particular types of plants didn't exist. It says because there was no rain and because there was no man to till to work the ground. In other words, what didn't exist was plants that required cultivation. And there was no cultivation yet because there was no man yet. Uh, that understanding of these plants of the field are talking about cultivated plants. It's uh, verified as you look over in chapter 3. Chapter 3, after the fall of man, after the curse is put on creation, God says this to Adam, speaking of the earth, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You see, the, the food that man's going to eat comes from the plants of the field. Plants of the field, you're going to have to work extra hard to cultivate them after the curse because you're going to be fighting thorns and thistles. You're going to be fighting weeds. You're going to be fighting the very earth from which the plants come. It's going to be hard work to grow your food. But the plants of the field talk about cultivated plants. And here initially as God creates man's world, man's environment, says there were simply not plants of the field yet. A second thing to notice along those lines, and by the way, I have to point out that, that as Moses is writing this through the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he is writing and describing for us a world that neither he nor us have ever seen. A world that was vastly different from the world we live in now because two Cataclysmic things have occurred since Adam that have changed the way the world is. The first we'll see in a few weeks in chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sin and God places a curse on creation. And things change as we just read in that passage. Thorns and thistles come. And the earth becomes, instead of friendly and everything wonderful, it becomes adversarial. A second cataclysmic thing that happens is a few chapters later in Genesis. It's not very far in, in pages, but it's, it's uh, well over 1,000, 1,500 years later, we have the flood of Noah, which has dramatically changed the earth we live in. So understand that Moses is 
trying to help us explain something none of us have ever seen. And it says here that not only were they at this time of God creating Adam's environment, that before man there were no plants of the field, and that at this time there was no rain on the earth. But it doesn't say the earth was dry, as the critics say. It says rather that it was watered differently. It says that the, a mist, or the word there could possibly be translated springs, came up from the ground and in some way watered the earth. It may mean that no rain had come simply by the day that God created Adam, or it could be that no rain came upon the earth actually until the flood of Noah. Because you won't find anywhere before the flood of Noah in, mentioned in Scripture where rain came upon the earth. The reality is, in man's world here, certain plants were missing. They come later, the plants of the field, and the earth was watered without rain. Then, verse 7, God makes man. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Again, God is giving us in these verses, as all this morning we're looking, if God gives us more detail on what happened on day six of creation. God formed man. He didn't simply speak man into existence. We noted that a couple of weeks ago. He's, as He had spoken so many other things, everything else really into being. Rather, it says here that He formed, literally the word there is He crafted. It's the word that's used of the potter who takes the lump of clay and puts it on the potter's wheel and begins to shape it to make a work of art. That's the word that's there. He forms man and He forms man, it says, from dust. Adam, the Hebrew Adam, was made from the Hebrew word Adama, dust. To play on words, to remind us that literally we are, as the old song said, dust in the wind. <laughs> Should keep us humble. I love the way the old radio preacher, uh, when I was growing up, my parents often had J. Vernon McGee on the radio. Friends, <laughs> we're made out of dust. And dust that gets stuck on itself is called mud. It's a reminder that we shouldn't be impressed with ourselves, get stuck on ourselves, because we are simply creatures of dust. I love the way McGee used to go on, and he'd, he'd often tell the story of a uh, uh, little boy who came home from Sunday school, you know, and he, he had learned that man was created from dust and that uh, when we die, we go back to dust. And he went to mom and he said, Mom, is it true that we came from dust and we die, we go back to dust? She said, yes, son, that's true. And he said, well, you know, I was looking under my bed this morning. There's either somebody coming or going. <laughs> but I notice that uh, we're made from dust. But notice what it doesn't say. It says we're made from dust. We're not made from other animals. That's a significant point. It goes on and it says that man became a living being, not the opposite. A living being becomes man. See, 
God could not make it clear. It's almost as if He knew that one day somebody would come along and try to say, we just evolved from stuff. Of course, God did know that. And He does. He makes the Word here, the Scripture, where once again it just refuses to be squeezed into an evolutionary narrative. God made us. He formed us from dust. And He took that thing that He made from dust and breathed into it life and man became a living being. He didn't evolve from something over millions of billions of years. Two implications that I want us to note from this. The first is that our life is from God. God breathed life breath into Adam and in a very real sense, God still places life breath in us today. He puts air in our lungs. We only breathe by His grace. We don't sit here going, breathe, 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 breathe. And when we stop thinking about it, we stop breathing. It doesn't work that way. We breathe because God puts air in our lungs. He keeps us breathing. And whenever He removes His sustaining hand from us, we perish. Human life is a gift. It's a stewardship from God. And because it's a stewardship because it's a gift and we are accountable to Him for what we do with our life. For what we do with the air in our lungs and the blood in our veins and the, the intellect in our brain, the talents that we have, the strength in our arms and hands, we will be accountable to God for the life that He has given to us. Along with that, there is also accountability to God for when human life is taken, when it is terminated. Because life, human life is a gift. God has made us. Along with that, I realize that not only is life from God, but our value comes from God. Our value comes from our Maker, not from our makeup. You see, dust hasn't really risen in value. Dust has maintained its value from the very beginning. It's worth really pretty much nothing. But we have worth and value because our Maker has given us value. As we were reminded earlier, as the choir sang, and it's been mentioned that we are made in God's image after His likeness. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. But here again, it's reinforced as we noted a minute ago that God formed us. He fashioned us with care. He made us a work of art. And then here it says that He breathed into man's nostrils. It simply could have said, He put breath in our lungs. But it's giving the picture here that God... you know, it's He gave, as it were, nose to nose, not resuscitation, suscitation, because it hadn't breathed yet. The picture there is intimate. It is personal. God interacts personally with His creatures, with mankind. It's very intimate there. 
More than that, it's true that this second account of creation from here on, that the name for God is different than what we saw in Genesis chapter 1 in the seven days of creation where we noted at the very beginning that God there is called Elohim, which means God Almighty. Here, when we come to Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and on through the rest of the chapter, we notice that it's not just God in our text. We'll see it says, Lord God. Added to Elohim now is, and you, most of you know when you see Lord in all caps, that it's the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah. It's Yahweh Elohim. God Almighty, but Yahweh is God's personal revealed name, the name by which God has revealed Himself to His people, the name by which God covenants or promises with His people, the name by which God interacts with His people. The point is being made here as the camera has zoomed in on the creation of man that man is unique and man is special. And as God makes man, it's all about relationship. It's about God interacting and relating personally with man. We have value because we are created to have relationship with God. That reality is key to understanding who we are and why we exist. We're not accidental freaks of nature. We are created by God very uniquely and very specially to have relationship with Him. And by the way, if you're here this morning and you, you don't have a relationship with God, He wants you to know that He wants relationship with you. And the way to begin a relationship with God, as we've mentioned already this morning, it comes by believing, by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And He invites you to that even in this very moment. Man's home. We've seen man's world, man's making. It goes on to talk about man's home. Verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided to become four rivers. And the name of the first is the Pishon, and it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good, and bdellium and onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon, and it's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So much we could say, um, again, the critics would say that, see, the, God is just now creating vegetation, but the reality is, first of all, it's only saying, here's speaking of vegetation that's in the garden. Perhaps God just created the garden on the day, day six when He made man. Or, more likely, He created it back on day three when He created the rest of vegetation. And very easily and very legitimately, the verbs here could be translated, and the Lord God had planted in the Garden of Eden and simply describing again what he had already done on day three. That's not really a big, a big issue at all. Move on. The real point here is that this 
man's home, this Garden of Eden, it was perfect. There was abundant and sparkling water. Food was readily available. It was plentiful, almost endless variety. Every seed-bearing plant, it says, is given for food. It's lush vegetation. It's not only beautiful to look at, but uh, not only the vegetation is beautiful to look at, but there are jewels, there's minerals, there's all kinds of natural resources that just add to the beauty and add to the uh, usefulness of the creation that God has put man in. I realize as well that the Garden of Eden was a real place. There's plenty of ideas and theories about where the Garden of Eden was. And we are given some geographical markers here, but the reality is it's impossible to say exactly where it was because the catechism of Noah's flood has definitely changed the surface of the earth and where things are. But the fact is, it uses specific geographic points of reference that we might understand that it was a real place, not a myth, nor nor a symbolic idea. It's a real place. But there's a message here. As God originally put man in paradise, and as we're going to discover, and part of the reason of this, the point of this whole section is that we started with paradise, but it doesn't end up there. And the problem... The problem conditions that we see today are man's fault, not God's. It's because of man's sin. The message is that sin has real consequences. This was particularly vivid imagery as Moses writes this and the the Jews are listening and they are there in the desert and wandering in the desert for 40 years before they go into the promised land and it's a reminder that God desires good and blessings for His creatures, for His people. But this sin brings, sin and disobedience and rebellion brings consequences and problems. Verse 15, we move from man's home to man's life in the garden. The Lord God took the man and He put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What was life like in the garden? When I think of paradise, I think of palm trees. And when I think of paradise, I think of palm trees and I think of the ocean and the beach. And I think of the ocean. And I think of me laying on the sand. With an umbrella handy when I need it. And no work. That's my view of paradise. Does that match any of you guys? And I was really surprised when I come here to paradise and it says the Lord God took the man and He puts him in the Garden of Eden in paradise to work it and keep it. We see here man's duty. (laughs) He's given the task of caring for the garden. Life in the garden includes work. A few verses later, We'll see next week that that Adam is giving the job of naming all the animals. So man is called upon to do both physical work and mental work. Lessons from that. Work is not a curse. All this is before mankind's sin. All of it is before the curse that's put on the world. Work itself is not a curse. What happens with the curse when we get there, we'll see, is that work is changed and it becomes labor. (laughs) It becomes difficult by the sweat of our brow, that we survive. 
They've got to work hard just to get food, just to survive. But work itself is not a curse. Matter of fact, it is exactly from this understanding, this reality, that Christians have always viewed that work is a holy calling. It's a thought that's developed through Scripture. We can't go to it all, but I'll take us just to one encouragement from the Apostle Paul. You see, all work can be God's work. All work can be serving and honoring to God and be fulfilling to us. This is what the Apostle Paul wrote to slaves of all people in Colossae. He says, whatever you do, work at it heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Any work you do, whether you are a student, whether you're doing your chores at home, whether you are in the workplace, the marketplace, working for the man, you know, or whether you're self-employed or whether you're working, taking care of your garden. It says that if we do it to the Lord, if we, if our attitudes is toward the Lord, we are serving the Lord. We, when we realize that we have a calling and a privilege to serve Christ through our labor, it transforms everything we do. We find freedom from drudgery and we find and discover purpose for living and joy in our work. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There's a restriction in paradise. A restriction in the garden. It probably would have taken, I imagine, we, we don't know, but I imagine it would have taken years, if not decades, for Adam and Eve to discover and explore all the varieties of luscious fruits and vegetables and things that they were to eat that God had provided in the garden. Not to mention discovering and, and experimenting with all the different ways of preparing them as they worked on making you know, and printing the first cookbook. Likely there were thousands of possibilities. In life in paradise, there was one restriction, one prohibition. The only command God gives, it's hardly a difficult one to understand and certainly not a difficult one to keep in light of what we just said. You've probably been noticing in recent months, as I have, it's been in the news, there's been lots of news stories about protests, unrest in Hong Kong. People there concerned of the Chinese government placing more restrictions and taking freedoms away from them that they have enjoyed for well over a century. It's not a new thing. We have seen similar scenes in other places in the world over you know, as long as we've, we've been alive. And we get it. We empathize with that. They want freedom. There's something innate in all of us. We long for freedom, right? And so some of us, just when we even read, wait, there was a, a restriction in paradise? There's a rule there? 
What do you mean with that? The reality is, while we long for freedom, freedom is not what most of us think it is. To most people, freedom is the freedom to do anything that we want to do. But that really isn't freedom. We don't have time to go into it. The Bible says once we get into sin, what we find is sin is slavery. (laughs) And so the Bible would say that freedom is not doing everything you want to do, anything you want to do. Freedom means it's the opportunity to do anything, whatever is good and right. Freedom is not the absence of boundaries. It's not the absence of authority. It's not the absence of accountability. It's the opportunity to do whatever is good and right. That is freedom. That's true freedom. God placed man in paradise, free to enjoy all that God has created, freedom to do whatever He wishes, to create, to explore, to eat, whatever He wishes within the boundaries God has set, which is simply one thing. Don't eat of this tree. Because man is not God, man does not set the rules. God is God. He sets the rules. It's one boundary. Yet as we know the rest of the story, we'll get there in a few weeks, that became a problem. The real problem for Adam and Eve is really the same as it is for you and me. The real problem isn't freedom. They had freedom, so do we. The real problem is trust. Will we trust God? Will we believe God? Will we believe that what God says is good? Will we believe that God has our best interest at heart? Or are we going to join in with those who think God is the great cosmic killjoy who has one purpose, And that is to keep you from having fun. Whatever it is you want, I'm going to keep you from it. (laughs) That's how many view God. Or will we believe that God is God? That He is Creator? He is in charge? He has the authority? But not only does He have the authority, He is moved and motivated by love. For those whom He created to have relationship with. And will we trust Him? Really, our situation, while we live in a world that is marred and flawed, we don't live in a world like Adam and Eve that was perfect. (laughs) Our situation is the same. The question for us is the same. Will we believe God and honor Him as God Or will we go our own way, essentially setting ourselves up in God's place? There's the question. And that's really the ending of this lesson for this day. What will we do? Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for loving us. We've seen it this morning as we reflected on communion. We've seen it as You lovingly created our ancestors. 
We are creatures of dust, but You have chosen to love us, to love us so much that You sent Jesus. Thank You for all Your marvelous provisions for us. Even though the world we are in today is different from what we see here in Genesis 2, it's flawed, it's marred, it's corrupted, it's cursed. Yet we still, still are surrounded in a marvelous world. We're surrounded by colors and textures and sounds. We have a world of music. We have a world of tastes and smells. A world of marvelous beauty. An abundance of food which most of us will partake of in a few moments, in a short while. Thank You for that. Thank You, Father, that You have given to us the privilege of work the privilege of doing things that matter, that give purpose and meaning and, and joy to our life. This week, may we honor You in the very way that we clean our house, that we build things, that we, in the way that we study, in the way that we cook, in the way that we shovel, or the way that we weld, or the way that we fix things, or the way that we type, or whatever it is that we do. May we work at it with all our hearts as if we're serving You. Because it is You that we serve. Above all, may we remember this week that You are God and we are not. May we trust You and listen to You and submit humbly to You and enjoy the freedom that You've given to us through our Lord Jesus. It's in His name we pray. Amen.